Hi, Liz Winstead, co-creator of The Daily Show and founder of Abortion Access Front, or as we call it, Abortion AF. Abortion AF is a nonprofit created by activists, organizers, and a variety of showbiz types who want to use our talents and platforms to raise awareness to the erosion of abortion access and create programs that help us reclaim this fundamental right. We help connect local abortion providers and activists with their community so folks can learn how to help clinics stay open, patients access care, and reverse the current decimation of bodily autonomy. We also get into good trouble exposing the lies of the anti-abortion movement at their churches, their rallies, and their religious-based fake abortion clinics where creepy people doing some sort of medical cosplay demonize folks seeking abortion care instead of providing it. Oh yeah, and our weekly podcast, Feminist Buzzkills Live, we use facts and humor to wade through the ever-changing news in this hellscape. To learn more or to make a donation, visit aafront.org. Exposing sexist ass clowns has never been more rewarding. Hey everybody and welcome back to another edition of Weibo TV. We are happy to have you. Today on the show we have Dr. Seema Yasmin. Super cool conversation. We also have a, looks like a musical performance from Blendermouth. Some kind of post-rock. Not sure. Let's head on over to Happy Harriman, New York, home of the George Carlin Podcast Studio and our host, Mr. BJ Mendelson. Thank you so much for joining us, Seema. How are you today? I'm good. How about you? I am great now that you're here to t- tell us about what you're working on. So let's let's dive in. I'd love to hear all about it. Yeah, so my next book is coming out in September. It's called What the Fact? And it's very relevant to today, but also it's the basis of what I've been researching for the last 10 years or so. And it's all about the spread of misinformation and disinformation, but it's aimed at teenagers. So really, it's a how-to guide for teens, but really for all of us, about how to separate fact from fiction, how to understand the way that journalism is made, how to read between the lines of a headline, of a newspaper lead, how to figure out really what your own news diet should look like. So it's about fostering critical thinking in young people and all of us. Also looking at media literacy, but then digital literacy and social media literacy as well. So I'm very excited about that September launch. Yeah, I am as well, because I've been dying to find like a a book that's related to critical thinking for, for younger people. Yeah, and there's not much out there, which, you know, when you have an idea for a book, and this idea came from myself, my agent, Lily, and um, a senior editor at Simon & Schuster called Justin Chanda, who was looking for something like this, you kind of think there's got to be stuff out there, and there really isn't. And so I think we've left young people in this really terrible situation of fake news, fake news, fake news everywhere, just be skeptical, oh my gosh, it's so bad, you can't believe anything, as opposed to, well, actually, let's give you the tools to figure out what you can and can't believe, walking around skeptical of everything is one exhausting and two not the best way actually to protect yourself from falling from misinformation and disinformation so it was really fun to write this book but also really satisfying in that you know what there are red flags we can teach young people and adults to look out for there are tools and strategies out there that you can use to protect yourself from falling for bunk and there are so many researchers especially looking at the gamification of protecting us from fake news that it was fun to put all of that together in one book what what surprised you the most in the process of making the book that you didn't expect one of the things that I found really humbling and um, sobering is just among like the scholars who study disinformation and misinformation researchers 
that we fall for stuff too. And one of my favorite researchers often will start a meeting by saying, so someone tell us something that you believed, even if it was for half a day or a few hours. And I think that's kind of surprising that, hey, even those of us who are like thick in the weeds with this still fall for bunk sometimes. Um, But it's really humbling to remember that no one's immune to this, but yet there are strategies we can use to build immunity. And actually some of the research out there shows the higher educational attainment you have, the stronger and more fixed your biases might be. And that's not helpful in protecting you from falling for lies. Yeah, you would think it's the other way around, but I love that that it's actually the reverse. Uh, Tell me a little bit more about, so tell me about the first book, because I'm I'm curious about the journey from when you were first published to now, there's like the second book that you're you're getting ready to market. So this is going to be my fifth book. Fifth book. this is coming from a person who was a journal. I went to medical school. I practiced medicine. I did public health and then ended up going to journalism school, which is a whole nother story. But in the newsroom, I loved reporting daily stories. I loved reporting your Sunday morning stories. Those took a few weeks to report and write. But at any given point, you know, those stories were a few thousand words long. And I think every newsroom has those veteran journalists who were like, I'm at that point in my career where I'm working on a book. And they always just seem to be in agony regarding the book projects. I was like, I'm a smart person. I'm just going to stick to journalism. I'm not doing any book writing. And then I got approached by an editor who said, I want to turn one of your weekly newspaper columns debunked into a book. And so that's what got me thinking, well, maybe I could do that. Um, And then as happens in life, you know, I signed that book deal, got ready to do that. And it ended up not being my first book. So that book ended up being called Viral BS, Medical Myths and Why We Fall for Them. And instead of being my first book, as was the plan, it ended up being my second book. Because what happened, and this is also horribly relevant, in 2014, when Russia annexed Crimea, you might remember that a plane flew over the war zone that should not have flown over the war zone. And it was a civilian plane. It was a flight from Amsterdam going to Malaysia on its way to Australia, flight MH17, Malaysia Airlines, for anyone who recalls that horrible incident in 2014. And my dear friend and mentor and his partner were on that plane. And his name was Dr. Yup Langa. He was a phenomenon in the world of HIV He was so passionate, impatiently passionate, which is why the book is called The Impatient Dr. Langer. He had a strong personality. He upset people, but he was on this mission to try and end the HIV pandemic. And when he passed away, people said to me, he had so much left to give. He had so much left to do. He was going to Australia to talk about a cure for HIV that his lab was working on. You need to write a book about his life. And I was like, no, no not doing it. Uh, It felt too soon. I was devastated. I was still dealing with that. What an awful, awful loss. And and the way that he died, it was just too much to comprehend. And then people said to me, look, if you don't write it, who's going to write it? And this will be a way of extending his legacy. So after saying no, I then said, this is going to feel huge, but let me have a go. And I didn't want to write a hagiography. This was a complicated man who, like I said, made people cry because he was so passionate and impatient. So that book, The Impatient Dr. Langer, ended up being my first book. Then Viral BS came out. Then I had this book, Muslim Women Are Everything, which came out right before lockdown, which I don't recommend uh, for book (laughs) launches. And then I had a poetry book called If God Is a Virus, which came out last year. So yes, the book that we've been talking about earlier, um, What the Fact, 
my first book for teens, although I told my agent, this was so fun. I just want to write for young adult <laughs> audiences specifically only from now on. Um, but that's actually book number five. So that's how it happens that you tell everyone, I'm never going to write a book. I don't want to write a book. <laughs> and then you end right. up signing five book deals. And I actually figured I love writing books. I love kind of getting deep into a topic and reporting it out over months or years. Hey, it's me, God. I know. It's been a while, and I haven't been the best dad, especially this century. Well, I was going through some shit, and you know what? I'm not going to talk about it. All you need to know is that I'm doing commercials now. I've got bills to pay, too. Do you have any idea how much I just lost on crypto? A lot. A lot. And so now God needs your money. Like, for real this time. Not like all those other times every Sunday. You know who else needs your money? B.J. Mendelson. So give him $5 by visiting buymeacoffee.com slash B.J. Mendelson. That website again is buymeacoffee.com slash B.J. Mendelson. Buymeacoffee.com slash B.J. Mendelson. And if you don't give B.J. your money, you and I are going to have problems big ones. Hi, I'm Mike Reese. I've been writing for The Simpsons for 30 years. But in my spare time, I travel. I've been to Iran, Iraq, the North Pole, the South Pole, Chernobyl. These are my vacations, folks. I've even been to North Korea. That's the scary Korea. It's all in my new travel podcast on the Believe Network called What Am I Doing Here? It's fast, it's funny, and it's factual enough. You'll hear how I was robbed in Rio, kidnapped in Honduras, dangled from a cliff in Pakistan, and chased by a lady with a meat cleaver again in Honduras. I had a lot of problems in Honduras. Each week I visit all the world's hot spots and hell holes so you don't have to. You're welcome. Download and subscribe to What Am I Doing Here? wherever you get your podcasts. What was the what was writing the book of poetry like? Like that's because that seems like a fun almost like a divergence, but a, a really enjoyable, creative one. So I'd love to hear about that process. Yeah, you know, I started writing this book when I was in West Africa reporting on Ebola. And I was, I was a journalist. I was writing for Scientific American, the magazine. I was writing for the Dallas Morning News. Um, I was an analyst for CNN reporting on Ebola. And it was very news. This is news. This is the news. We report the facts and news, right? But at the same time, I was in this place where so much death and trauma had happened. People were grappling with grief. And I was specifically reporting on those people who had survived Ebola. Maybe half their family had died from it, but they had survived. And now they were dealing with so much trauma, so much stigma. People didn't want to be near them or touch them. And yeah, you report that as a journalist, but poetry really gave me permission to feel my feelings and to analyze and dissect some of that stuff. So the poems in here are about Ebola survivors, but they're also about journalism and how it is we decide 
we're going to report on Ebola until we're not. We don't think it's a crisis anymore. We don't think there's enough case, the case rates aren't high enough. We don't think there's enough deaths for this to be newsworthy. Um, so poetry was really freeing in that regard and that it gave me that license, that poetic license to interrogate journalism, interrogate medicine. There's poems in there about what it was like for me practicing as a physician. Um, and I generally just love poetry and encourage people to read it, give it a go. It's an art form that deserves more love and attention. So um, I did not see, I did not know about that book when I was doing the prep work. So that's, that's fantastic. I, I would love to know, like, so you mentioned starting out in one career field and then there was a, this divergence. Can you tell us a little bit about like that moment? Because a lot, a lot of what we talk about in the show is like, what's the best advice that you ever got? And what, you know, and yeah. so it's, it's interesting to hear about these pivots because they come up a lot yeah. in these different interviews. Yeah. And it's something that I coach people, leaders now around pivot points and transitions because they're scary, but amazing things can happen at those points. What happened for me is I was really interested in HIV as a young person and living in London. I had a friend with HIV who was born with it. And I used to volunteer for a charity for kids with HIV. So I thought about medicine, but I had a high school teacher say to me, don't bother. You'll never be a doctor. You'll never get into med school as some teachers sometimes do when they look at kids who come from a single parent family. No one in my family was a doctor, you know, people didn't go to university. And so I was like, oh, maybe I can't do that then. And a few years later, it was Dr. Yup Lange, who I ended up writing a book about, who said to me, you can be a doctor, you should be a doctor. Um, And, you know, you need that person that believes in you. And so that was my stepping stone to go into medical school and being like, you know what, screw that high school teacher, I'm going to apply. And not only that, but I'm going to apply to Cambridge, because I was like, really, not I was going to say I was feeling myself, I was not feeling myself. (laughs) But I was very ambitious at that point. I was like, I'm going to go for it. And I went into med school. So there's already a pivot here because I went into med school thinking I'm going to learn how to be a doctor so I can be a really good scientist because I want to work on a vaccine for HIV. Then in med school, I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. You get to be with someone at their most vulnerable, their most scared. You get to be that person that tries to make them comfortable, answers your questions. You can really like piece together the puzzle of why they're sick and how to make them better. So then I was fully invested in practicing medicine, left Cambridge at the end, went back to my home in Hackney, East London to work in my local hospital. And within a year, I was pretty disillusioned with medicine. And bear in mind, this is in the context of the National Health Service in England, which is free at the point of care. But I just felt like we were patching patients up, letting them go. And then they were coming back in through a revolving door the next week, the next month, just sicker. And I was like, I don't want to just patch somebody up. And I also had this mentality that by the time someone arrived in my ED, we'd failed them. We'd failed them 10 times. Why were they homeless? Why were they addicted to drugs? Why were they in a domestic violent relationship? I just felt like That was the wrong way to practice medicine, just to patch someone up so they're well enough to walk out. And so another mentor of mine, an American doctor called Lynn Paxton said, you actually are interested in public health. And I was like, am I? Because I kind of failed that in med school in the first year. Don't really understand what it is. And she was like, no, you need to train in public health. And England had a not great training program. I didn't want to be a guinea pig. It was very new. And she said, apply to this thing that I did. It's called the Epidemic Intelligence Service. They don't let many non-Americans in because it's affiliated with the military, but I'll write you a letter you should try. And so I tried and I got in. And so I left hospital medicine in East London, arrived in Atlanta about 10 years ago, 2011. Wow, 11 years ago. And 
I was a disease detective in the Epidemic Intelligence Service. If you've watched Contagion, you know a bit about that. So then I'm on this other track, right? Now I'm investigating epidemics. I'm flying to wherever there's a hot zone, a contagion, trying to stop the disease from spreading. And I do that for a few years and I love it. But what I realize is that not every outbreak I'm going to is something wild. Like there was an outbreak of botulism in a maximum security prison I investigated. There was like weird things. But the bane of my life as a disease detective was whooping cough and measles and mumps in America. And kids were dying of whooping cough in America. And I was like, what is happening? Because as a doctor in England, I hadn't seen these diseases. As a med student, we looked at old photos. We were played cassette tapes of what the whooping cough of whooping cough actually sounds like. And um, of course, we all know now there was a really strong anti-vaccine movement that was encouraging people in very compelling, entertaining and memorable and emotional ways to not vaccinate your kids. And so I was just like, this is ridiculous. In public health, we love vaccines. Are we just going to ignore the fact that the anti-vaccine groups or the vaccine hesitant groups are better at their storytelling than we are at ours? It just seemed really foolish that every time I got sent to a hot zone, it was just to focus on a pathogen and not all the messaging that was going viral, right? No pun intended, around that pathogen. And so I thought, I need to train in this. And so I went to journalism school, not knowing how I would use that degree, but knowing that that training and storytelling, understanding information contagion would be important. So there was another pivot point. I landed at the Dallas Morning News, working with CNN and NBC, reporting on medicine. And then I had another pivot point a few years later where I went into academia. And I'm kind of now in a really sweet spot where I'm combining lots of different passions. So teaching, I do research on the spread of false information and what makes us vulnerable. I'm writing books, including poems. I'm working on a novel. Um, So I'm kind of fighting that bad advice I was given a lot, which is stay in your lane, do one thing. If you go to med school, that's it. You're a doctor for life to be like, no, there's a ton of things that I'm passionate about. And why can't we bring all of ourselves to the table? And get our hands messy with all the things that we love to do. This is Rosie Tran from Rosie and BJ Save the World, a podcast asking big questions and discussing how to solve these big issues. This is a podcast for people just like you who ask, has the war on drugs been successful? Do we need universal basic income? Should we legalize sex work? Go to rosieandbjsavetheworld.com to get more confused. Commercials suck, and hopefully one day we won't need them. But until that day comes, we have bills to pay, brother. What the fuck is this copy? I I don't know, man. BJ wrote it, and I think he was high when he did it. How do you know he was high? I just, I read through it, and I just have a, I don't know, man, just read it. (laughs) What kind of bills do we have to pay? Well, for starters, you wouldn't believe how much it costs to feed a super intelligent ape who wants to kill Superman? Yes. At first he said he would pay BJ rent, but then some asshole told the ape about squatters', squatters rights? Yep. And he's a supervillain, you know, so he stopped paying rent, and now we all kind of work for him? He's a terrible boss. One time he was eating some guy's face and just left the rest of him in the middle of the floor. I guess it's better than working at Amazon, though. Anyway, 
way the apes got this cool ass setup in the basement of bj's mom's house you should see it there's this kick-ass pool down there i have no idea how you get a huge pool in the basement of a small house but he found a way separate lines he found a way now if only the ape could remember to take out the garbage in his office before he leaves for the weekend. Everyone else does it. And that includes Stephen Wheat, who works in accounting and shits out of his mouth. <laughs> anyway, that's what's going on here in Harriman, New York, home home of the... Yeah, man, I'm pretty sure he was high, but let's just get back to it. <laughs> now, let's get back to the show. Now, let me ask you about uh, the spread of COVID-19 and what the fact. So is there, what? how much do we, do you go into COVID uh, and some of the misinformation about it in the book? I use a ton of examples in the book so that we're not just being theoretical. Like, hey, look at this meme and how it spread. Look at this Facebook post that was false, but look how viral it went. And I use those examples to be like, let's understand why. Let's like reverse engineer it, dissect it, figure out what the red flags are. Why did this fake news go viral? Whereas the accurate stuff just didn't go anywhere. And so because I use loads of examples and I was writing this book during COVID, there are so many COVID related pieces of bunk and BS and conspiracy theories that are in the book um, just because they were present. So yeah, I do go into that. And I, I use these models that scientists now use that I find fascinating where you can use a mathematical model, right, to look at a disease like COVID, Ebola, flu, and be like, we can plug in some estimates to figure out in one month's time, where will this infection have spread? How many people could it have infected? What country might it have spread to, Right. You can use the same model to map the transmission of not the virus, but rumors, myths, and lies about the virus. So I do those comparisons in the book too, and kind of have these diagrams of lines going from like one place to another. On one side of the page, it's a disease that's spreading. On another side, it's a rumor about the disease that's spreading. Now, what was it like when Muslim Women Are Everything came out and then the, there was the lockdown? Like, I'm just fascinated by, you've got this book, it's very exciting, and it's got yeah. such a great title. And then all of a sudden, there was this pandemic. Man, it was that point, though, in the pandemic where we weren't sure how we were going to deal with it. So we knew lockdown was about to happen. So my events and book tour got cancelled, as many authors face that similar challenge. But we hadn't figured out yet that we'll just do things via Zoom or what things are going to look like in the virtual world. So it was really tricky. Um, the fun thing is that I... This is a book that has legs. And so often in the publishing world, all the effort and all the energy is done around the pub date, right? The date the book comes out. But this book is so relevant. It's got women who are still alive and kicking butt in it. And it's got women who lived centuries ago who still have um, important places to uh, fill in our lives as incredible role models. So it's nice to see that people are still engaging with it. But yeah, March 2020, we were like, uh-oh, <laughs> right. what are we going to do? This isn't a normal book launch. Exactly. So I, I have a few more questions before we wrap up because uh, I want to be mindful of your time. I, I want to ask, as a as a journal, coming from like that journalist background, are, is there a tool that you use or a set of tools that helps you kind of find the signal through the noise? What do you mean in, in regards to sure. what exactly? Are there, like, let's say, do you enter all of your information into, like, let's say, a notes app? And then from that notes app, you that you would then have a process of sorting and filtering into something like Notion. Like, what 
walk us through that process of just you're, you're taking in all this new information as you're investigating something, but then yeah. do you use anything that you found is helpful in processing it? Different things for different kinds of projects, depending on how meaty and long-winded the project's going to be. Sure. For book writing, both nonfiction and fiction, I've recently got into Scrivener, um, thanks to my friend Rana, who taught me how to use it. So I was a bit like, oh, I don't want to have to expend energy to learn a new thing, even though everyone says it's great and it ends up being a really low barrier to entry. But other than that, I'm pretty straightforward in using um Word and Google Docs, and I still do a thing that we learn in the Epidemic Intelligence Service, for every different outbreak we got sent to, we were given a new notebook to use for all field notes and lab notes related to that outbreak. And it was sometimes outbreaks happen one after the other after the other. And it was really useful having that to kind of compartmentalize each outbreak, because even once an outbreak was over, you would still analyze data. Even once the acute situation was dealt with, you were still going to do more analysis, write it up, stuff like that. So what I do now is I have a massive stack of notebooks, not CDC issued, but each one has my brain dumps, my thoughts, my notes for different projects. There's one for my novel that I'm working on. There's one for my the research project that I do. There's one for a certain class I teach at the business school at UCLA. There's another notebook for the class I teach at Stanford. So I find that as someone who, yeah, I'm pretty tech savvy and I like that we have those tools, but sometimes I need a physical notebook in front of me and having a stack of 12 of them reminds me like where each project is at. <laughs> I'm just, I am the same way. So I, I thank you because I, I feel like that was confirmation for. Oh, you do uh, that too? Yeah, I have a bunch of them right here. Let's see. Uh, real quick. Uh, so bullet journal, right? Okay. Just just as an all-purpose daily planner. This is for morning pages. See if I can. Oh, nice. I need to get back into that. Yeah, it's. I found it's just very helpful. Uh, just the first thing you do in the morning, just to be able to dump everything in one place, is is very yeah. clarifying. Uh, but let me ask you, so my last two questions are, first, what was the best piece of advice that you ever got? To not stay in my lane. <laughs> when I was given that terrible advice and I shared it with people, like, can you believe someone said this? People were like, screw that. Do not stay. Because what is your lane? So I kind of live by that mantra. I love it. That's great. And so if you had to give someone a shout out to that you just wanted to put a spotlight on that maybe doesn't get the attention they deserve, who might it be? Oh, wow. That's a tough one because there's so many people. And I think I already like mentioned a few, right? Like who are just so pivotal at those scary points where you're like, what am I doing? Stepping off the conveyor belt of academic medicine to go to journal. Like, who, who does that? Who goes to med school? And then a few years later goes to journalism school. I'd sworn I'd never, you know, go back to any kind of Right. educational institution so there's been different people at different points but lynn paxton who i mentioned ward cates who sadly has passed away yup langa who's passed away there's a phenomenal physician and all-around human being called dr helene gale who has been an incredible role model for me and i think to many people um but Bob Mong at the Dallas Morning News at the time, he's not there anymore, but had the foresight to hire me and say, we need somebody with your expertise in the newsroom. We can't afford you. So how about we come up with this innovative plan where you are a reporter half the week and a professor at University of Texas the other half of the week? And just people who were creative like that, who let, made me realize, oh, maybe my dream job doesn't exist and we're going to have to construct these things. And I really run with that idea of crafting my own place in the world and not staying in my lane. 
and doing and dabbling in all the things that I want to do. And I've been working on TV projects, which hopefully this is the year they come to fruition. So I'm still I'll still experimenting. My, I'll keep Thank my fingers you. crossed for you. Uh, what is your favorite poem in your book of poems? Because I'm going to go out and buy it. So I want to know which one to start with. Thank you. You know, uh, there's a few, but one that just came to mind is one of the poems that I've written in here that's written from a virus's perspective. So it's written in the voice of a virus and there's a few of them and it's a virus that's writing a self-help book for humans. Nice. Very nice. They have some things to teach us. And even as someone who chased viruses, I mean, I can hate them, but have immense respect for them too. And I've been fascinated with them since I was like 13 years old and obsessed with HIV at the time. Um, But this idea that living things have different things to teach other entities, I'm kind of fascinated by the idea that we could perhaps learn something from viruses and as much destruction as they cause, they're also part of us. And there's a poem in here that mentions the fact that about 8 to 10% of our genome is viral because viruses that have infected humans over the course of humanity have become literally part of us. This was wonderful. I really appreciate you taking the time. Where can we, where can we find you? Where can we find the all, the all five books? They, they are all terrific. So like, I want to know where to buy them. Where can people buy them? Just go to simayasmin.com and you can look on the books page um, to find yeah more information about my books. I'm on Twitter as at Dr. Yasmin and Instagram at Dr. Seema Yasmin. Well, that's our show. And uh, our, our apologies to the band. You know, we kind of just ran out of time. That's kind of the, uh, that's the nature of things. It's the, it's the name of the game. Hey, hey, hey! Vaped Crusaders comes out on the 20th of every month. The 20th! You can't smoke that in here! Oh, wait, what day is it now? Do I look like a fucking calendar to you? Hey, man, I don't need all the attitude and stuff, you know? I don't I don't need it. Well, I don't need your face, your vape, or your... Are those Air Jordan 3 OGs? Yeah, yes. Those are $4,500 sneakers. I know, they're pretty sweet. Yeah, they are. No, wait. I don't like you. Don't make me like you. I'm not, man. I'm just out here. I'm just trying to relax, dude. I'm on you, pal. You're trying to do some Jedi mindfuck bullshit. <laughs> and <laughs> I don't I don't think that's what it's called. I don't think that's the thing. You want to play mind games with me, motherfucker? All right, let's dance. <sighs> Sorry. Um, make sure to tune in to Vape Crusaders. New episodes are going to drop every month on the 20th right here on Weibo.tv.
Okay, your 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 middle name is Macho, but uh, I'm wondering if you ever cry. You ever has Macho Man ever cried? Yeah. Really? Uh huh. It's okay for macho men to show every emotion available right there, you know, because I've cried a thousand times, I'm going to cry some more. But I've soared with the eagles and I've slithered with the snakes and I've been everywhere in between. And I'm going to tell you something right now. There's one guarantee in life and that there are no guarantees. Yeah. And I understand this. Yeah. Nobody likes a quitter. Nobody said life was easy. So if you get knocked down, take the standing eight count, get back up and fight again. Did you enjoy today's show? If you did, please take a minute and leave us a review. Yes, we know you're busy and every podcast asks you to do this, but there's a good reason they do. Because every time you leave a review, that review helps more people find and listen to the show. And you know what that means for you? More great episodes of Weiwo.tv. So what are you waiting for? Take out your phone and leave us a review right now before you move on to something else and forget about us. And we'll see you next time, right?